This week's episode is made possible by our friends at Independent Bank. You can learn more about them at i-bankonline.com. Good morning, Memphis. You're listening to Meanwhile in Memphis on WYXR Radio 91.7 FM. Meanwhile in Memphis is a program dedicated to conversations that celebrate the organizations, initiatives, and people that are shaping Memphis for the better. The Meanwhile in Memphis radio show and podcast is brought to you by New Memphis, a nonprofit organization whose mission is to develop, activate, and retain the city's most important resource, its people. Your hosts today are me, Rebecca Daly, and Anna Thompson. Before we dive into our conversation and introduce our guest, just a few quick notes about upcoming events. If you are listening live today, it is the last day to register for the upcoming Memphis municipal election. So if you are not registered to vote or if you don't know what your voter registration status is, be sure to update that today, September 5th. Coming up on September 19th is Memphis 101, which is made possible by Regional One Health. Memphis 101 is a high-energy course offering an up-close view into Memphis, its people, music, culture, politics, and more. Throughout the presentation, you will learn more about the real story of Memphis and its dramatic place in American history. Speaking of dramatic American history, what a segue into today's guest. Anna, will you tell us a little bit about her? Absolutely. Um, Joining us today is Anasa Troutman from the historic Claiborne Temple. She is a cultural strategist, writer, director, producer, philanthropist, and real estate developer. She's also a leader and visionary focusing on the future of culture, both here in Memphis and nationally. She serves as the executive director of the historic Claiborne Temple, just steps away from the FedEx Forum downtown. Claiborne Temple served as the home base for the 1968 sanitation workers' strike in Memphis. Leaning into the future social impact, her cultural wellness framework and culture shift methodology come together to cultivate safety, abundance, and storytelling through public engagement and strategic investment. Please join us in welcoming Anasa to the studio to discuss the importance of adaptive reuse in the Memphis community. Well, welcome to the studio this morning. I'm so excited to have you here. I'm excited to be here. Oh, yay. I love this energy already. <laughs> already, it's going to be a good one. Um, so let's get started. And I wanted you to tell us a little bit about yourself and your role at the historic Claiborne Temple. Oh, that's easy. Uh, well, my name is Anasa Troutman. I am the executive director of Claiborne Temple. And technically, I'm the founder of historic Claiborne Temple, but, you know, it's strange to say that in the street because people are like you didn't found the building but I founded the organization that purchased the building um I've been there for six years almost wow wow cheers to that that time flies when you're having fun (laughs) I know right um I think my role there is really um this is gonna sound like I'm being boastful and I don't mean it but I my role is to be the visionary there to really help rethink uh the space and to think about how we can bring the stories of the past into the stories of the future and to build a team to execute the vision. That's a critical. And raise all the money. There's yes. that part too. That, that, <laughs> that, that little side piece right yeah, there. Important fundraising role. Yes, yes, yes. So Anasa, can you bring us up to speed on Claiborne Temple, a little oh, bit of its yeah. history, how you got involved with the project, what role it plays <sighs> in our community? 
Yeah, just a couple of big softball questions there. <laughs> Very unimportant. I'm afraid I'm going to talk for the next two hours. Yeah, so for folks who don't know Historic Claiborne Temple, actually... Um, so the very first church service was January 1st, 1892, and it really opened up as Second Presbyterian. Second Presbyterian built that church and was there for many, many, many years. And then um, as protests were unfolding and life was changing in terms of the intersection of race and class around the country, um, Second Presbyterian sold the building to the AME Church. For those who don't know, what is the AME Church? Oh, the African Methodist Episcopalian Church. Thank you. Sure. And then um, the church became really well known for being a community grounded, like supporting movement building, supporting community, a place where people can come together. And the pastor was a Canadian. So he was white, but he was not American. And he was like, I don't I don't understand what's happening. I don't understand why God's people are being so divisive, why folks are trying to keep people out. I don't understand the violence. And he opened his church up for community work, specifically around civil rights. And so because of that, and also because of the proximity to downtown and to City Hall, Historic Claiborne Temple became the site of the 1968 sanitation workers. It was where the strike organizers went. It was where the folks who were there during the day collecting money and food and clothes, the way to support the sanitation workers. The workers would meet there twice a day in the morning to get their signs that were made in the basement on the church's hand crank printer. Or some young people were making them on the weekend. They would come in the morning and they would do their first march down to City Hall. They would come back for lunch and then do a second one in the afternoon. And so all of the negotiation, all the meetings, all of the things that had to do with the strike happened in that church, led by folks like T.O. Jones and Cornelia Crenshaw and Reverend Lawson. And then, um, you know, the story goes that um, it's such a long story. I have so many things I want to say, but ultimately... Um, Dr. King got involved, and that's the reason why he was in Memphis when he was assassinated a half a mile down the road at the motel. So, like, the history of Claiborne Temple, actually, many people know it for the strike, but this conversation about the intersection of race and class here in Memphis and in the Mid-South, actually, the building's history is steeped in it from the beginning, right? In some ways, the ways that, in some ways um, that are uncomfortable and disturbing in other ways that are empowering and uplifting and hopeful for the future. And I um, <laughs> actually didn't know any of that when I came here the first time. <laughs> I knew nothing. And look at you now. <laughs> <laughs> I really came to Memphis because I was, um, I had a funder for a whole nother program. I've done all kind of community-based work for probably since I was born, blaming on my parents. And I was here doing some girls and women's work, honestly. And somebody was like, you should go by Claiborne Temple. And I had literally not a clue about the history. I just trusted the person who sent me down there. And I walked in and my brain exploded with colors and sounds and visions. And I was like, what is this place? What is this place? And the people who owned it happened to be in there. And it was like a complete construction site. Everybody had on hard hats and steel toed boots. I just walked in there in the center. I was like, hello, is anyone here? <laughs> and I met them and we just started talking and I like heard um, the history and heard the vision and it moved me to tears. And I just was like, please keep in touch with me and let me know um, how I can be helpful. And I told them my background and my history 
and some of the like immediate ideas. And at the time they were really in a turning point because they had these ideas about what they wanted to do. And members of the community were like, you cannot do that in that building. And to their credit, they were like, okay, 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 we won't do those things, but then what are we supposed to do? And I walked right into their life right in that moment, and I was like, oh, I know what to do. And a year later, I moved to Memphis to produce a musical called Union the Musical about the sanitation worker strike for MLK 50. So I moved here in January 2018, thinking I would be here for six months to produce a show and move on. I ended up co-writing the show and never leaving. So here I am, six years later. A chosen Memphian. (laughs) (laughs) For real, though. I love it. For real. This is my place. I feel like I've lived here my whole life. It feels like, too, just as... So you've touched a little bit on your background. We will link your website and all of the lovely goodies about (laughs) all of the work and all the hats that you wear there. Yeah. But the fact that you, you know, would write and produce a like a musical about such an important thing that is so tied Mm -hmm. to the historic Claiborne Temple. Mm -hmm. And then how that then moved into you being the executive director of the vision yeah. and the innovation that will, like you said, carry the stories on for the next generations. I mean, wow. Like <laughs> truly like the passing of the torch in yeah. that way of you walking in your sundress into that construction site <laughs> is just very serendipitous. I mean, it's very me. Like that story is very me. Like one Turning a story, like literally a story in a musical into a whole life, totally me. Doing five things that I never knew how to do before and probably had no business even trying to do, totally me. Like moving in vision and faith and not knowing where I was going to step next, 100% me all day. So I don't, uh, it's funny because I <laughs> I look back on these moments in my life and I'm like, what were you thinking? What were you thinking? And even even um, doing the musical, like I've produced many, 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 many things, but I had never produced a musical before. But I love musicals and I know how to build a team and I understand music production and I understand theater. Right. So I just was like, calculate, calculate, calculate. I can figure it out. And my time here, those first six months here in Memphis, when I met like so many incredible people, most of them black artists here because of what I was doing. Right. You were working with the Memphis was, Black Arts Alliance, right? Or... Oh, that was like even before the musical. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> that was even before that. That was when I was just like going back and forth and trying to figure out like who these folks were, who the Memphis arts community was, how I could be supportive when I was just living in Nashville, like coming once a month just to kind of okay. like, right. I feel like your story is so synonymous with kind of just the way that Memphis attracts and creates these multi-hyphenate creatives, yeah. movers, shakers, doers. Yeah. yeah, I think you are so primed to be a part of this community because your work is so reflective of the way this community moves and it feels yeah. like a good fit. <laughs> I think that's part of, that was like my first thing was like, because I was um, moving in the art space because I was working with MMI, Memphis Music Alliance, um, M- Memphis Music, I'm going to take a beat. I was working with the Memphis Music Initiative and then I had fallen in with the Memphis Black Arts Alliance. And so I was like moving in and out of these spaces with all of these creatives. And I was like, these are my people. Where have they been all my life? And in fact, when I decided to move, I went to them and I asked permission because, you know, first rule of organizing and being in community work is like you don't go to somebody's community and just be like, hey, this is what we're going to do. You you enter 
with respect and honor to what is already there and you ask permission to enter. And sometimes people are like, no, we're good. And some people like in this instance, thank God, they were like, if you don't pack your stuff up right now and bring your butt to Memphis, <laughs> you're going to be in trouble. And so I felt, um, I felt like this was my home before I even moved here. And then, um, my first six months, the other half of my first six months was all about storytelling. It was about researching the stories of this place, of this region, of that building, of the strikers, of their families. And I read an article. It's I think it's called Memphis Burning, I think it's called. And it tells the story of um, Robert Church and his legacy. And I swear to you, I closed the folder and I was like, I'm moving. That story, I was like, this is this is this is my work, because I realized like it's one thing to read that story on a random day. It's another thing to read it when you're literally writing a musical about the sanitation workers. And I realized that the work that we were doing was not just about restoring the legacy of the sanitation workers and of King. We were really restoring the legacy of Robert Church. And to be able to make that arc and to, to, to be in that leap and think about how to extend that leap, because uh, <laughs> this is so funny. The other thing that was happening is like, I've always done national work. So I'm always in these big, juicy, beautiful conversations with people from all over the country. And I had just been in a conversation where, where the group was talking about what a hundred year arc would look like. Like, what if we had a hundred year strategy? And so I'm reading these stories about Robert Church. I'm reading these stories about the sanitation workers. And a friend of mine, we were talking, and he said, what if our 100 years already started? What if our 100 years started in 1968? And I was like, whoa. And it was literally 2018, 50 years later. And I'm like, what if we're in the middle of a 100-year arc? What does that look like? And so... I was able to like draw this story, not just from Robert Church all the way to King and the sanitation workers and Cornelia Crenshaw, but also like from 2018, 50 years forward. And then my question became, what does historic Claiborne Temple need to become in order for the 50 year end of the first hundred years to be the the city and the vision that Robert Church had and actually created because Robert Church actually built and maintained a multiracial middle class neighborhood community full of culture and professionals and entrepreneurship. And it was exactly what everyone's acting like is completely impossible. So he did it a hundred years ago. So I'm like, okay, so that is our work. That's Claiborne Temple's work is to use Leverage the um, leverage the legacy of the sanitation workers to rebuild and restore and revive that vision of community. So, how did you go from having that light bulb realization <laughs> to like boots on the ground logistics of like yeah, revitalizing? That's always a problem. A historic <laughs> building because like, I feel like that's so often so many Memphians and we've talked so much. So Memphis is ripe with ideas and 100%. innovation and creatives yeah. and like really great things. Yeah. So often where we don't have the resources or the infrastructure or fill in whatever blank yep. to be able to get, make that dream a reality. Yeah. And so I'm curious how you were like, I'm going to walk in 
and I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna put the team together. Like you said, like you know how to put a team together and you yeah. had this vision. So how did the historic Claiborne Temple Foundation become this thing that is like, I'm gonna work with all these architects who now yeah. have to know about historic renovation and all of and so that it can become this yeah. building that can then see these next 50 years through. Yeah, I have two answers that go together. Okay. The first answer is that there were many things already in place. Like Claiborne Temple, the vision for restoring Claiborne Temple did not was not born with me. It's a vision that I inherited and carried forward. And so I walked into a building. That's not true. There wasn't a building committee. I guess I built that too. <laughs> I walked into a situation where there was already an architect. There was already a contractor. There was already like... A conversation about it with people who know how to do that, right? Okay. Like, I was on a board of a museum in Nashville, the National Museum of African American Music, and I was the head of the curatorial committee. So I had like um, proximity to what it felt like to build something, and to have to I had to look at construction documents, I had to look at budgets, I had to understand how to how to build out something that would tell a story, and so I wasn't afraid of it. Okay. Right. I, I didn't understand it, but I felt familiar enough to be able to jump in. To not have it totally scare you away right. from it. <laughs> right. 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 And um, the people who I was working with were very welcoming at first. And they were like, you want to learn this? Sweet. You have questions? Ask away. And so I had I had a space of learning and a space of comfort that I felt like I could ask whatever I wanted and I would get the answer that I needed to be able to keep going. So that's like the first part is like, I was not um, trailblazing, right? I stepped into something that already existed and it felt good to me and I wanted to keep going, right? The other part of it is part of kind of my personality, which is like, <laughs> it's funny because I tell people this all the time is when I was younger, I was like the shyest person on planet earth. And you would not know it now, but like I used to like hide behind furniture. I never said a word. I only ever read books or had headphones on listening to music. And so I spent a lot of time in my head and I always had these kinds of ideas, but I didn't know how to get them out. And so I actually like had to, with great intention, learn to become somebody who understood their own mind enough to speak it out loud and to be able to understand how to translate my ideas and my thoughts into real life stuff. And I had a mother who used to tell me all the time, you can do anything you want. And I believed her. And so when I come here and I'm like, this feels like a warm and juicy place. These are my people. And this project feels like my life's work. I have what I need inside to just do it. I'm not, Figure it out. I'm not afraid to fail. I'm not afraid to look crazy. I'm not afraid to ask questions. And I believe in myself. <laughs> like, honestly, I I believe that I can do anything. And even when I don't know how, and even when I actually don't believe it, like on the outside, there's something inside of me that's like, will not let me stop. I had so many moments in the Claiborne process when I was like, this is crazy. This is hard. I feel like I'm gonna have a heart attack and die today from this work. I don't wanna do it and I just can't, I can't stop because I can see it so clearly. I can see it so clearly and I'm like, no. You wouldn't have this vision if it wasn't your work. You wouldn't have this compulsion if it wasn't your work. You wouldn't have this drive if this wasn't your work. You just got to keep going. What I hear a lot of energy in, in what you're saying around is breathing life into <laughs> a project and a community. And yes. I'd love to understand 
kind of what the process is for a historic revitalization mm. versus pure preservation? That's a really interesting question. Well, I feel like um, that's an important question for this city in particular because um, Memphis has historically been really bad with historic spaces and has like torn down a lot of important buildings. And there is like the part of it that's just about preserving the building, like the actual space and doing it, doing something else with it. And then there's the part that's about the story that existed that make that space historic in the first place and what you do with the storytelling, right? It's two totally different things. And there are times and ways to be able, like we're doing it with the stained glass windows. There are ways to tell the story of the space in the space. But also sometimes people just say, this was a beautiful, cool building and let's make it cute again, right? <laughs> Which is different than pulling the story out projecting it across time and space and then making sure it seeps back into the building. That's two different processes and neither one is right or wrong, but it does take a different level of skill, right? Um, the kind of historic preservation takes architectural skills, preservation skills, like you got to know how to design and do all that stuff and build. But the other part takes a storyteller, like the the actual ability to, to, um, identify and retell those stories in ways that people can relate to today. And then the part that people don't talk about a lot, which is the part that's my favorite part, is like, how do we actually make those stories come alive in the future so that you can actually see your own pathway forward in the lessons from the stories that you hear from those spaces? That is the part that I think is the most important for Claiborne Temple, at least, because... Claiborne Temple will not be a museum. We will have a museum and we will talk about the past, but that building is not about the past. That building is about the future. That is why it is so important. That is why I've been so compelled and that's why I've been so committed because this is not about only the sanitation workers. It's also about the sanitation workers' great-grandchildren and their great-grandchildren and how we exist as a community, as a community of Memphians, chosen and otherwise, how we decide to move together in the future, um, to me, that's what Claiborne is about and why it's so important. What is your hope for <laughs> the next, you know, and I'm not going to say 50 years because that's, that's, that's long. But if you know, you could, you're welcome to say, but yeah. I mean, what is your hope for how those stories can be woven into future generations? But also with that kind of caveat, like you mentioned before, of like <clears throat> the honor and respect that needs yeah. to be paid to walk into the space and understand <laughs> the weight that is there. Yeah, we think about this a lot um, because the work at Claiborne Temple, um, really what it taught me was that we needed more than Claiborne Temple because the work that we wanted to do, the work that I've been envisioning, <clears throat> it needs more infrastructure to actually be robust. And so um, in the past three years, we've built out a production company to do more storytelling. We've built out a foundation, the Big We Foundation, to be able to raise money and redistribute it in the communities in Memphis and, and across the Mid-South. And now we're building um, a development firm because we understand in order to do restorative development and build in these communities in ways that don't gentrify them and don't create separation, further separation, you actually have to build a new model for development. So... We're like doing we're we're, um, we're making the road by walking because we're saying like 
we we need to get over there. So like, what is the next lily pad? Oh crap, the lily pad doesn't exist. Okay, well let's get out the fibers and wave one up and figure out what color it needs to be. Who needs to work there? And then we move to the next one. And so, um, that journey has been really interesting because then as a team, as we're growing, we have to be aligned all of us around what it is that we're actually building towards so you're all pulling in the same direction that's right <laughs> and so we've been thinking a lot about this language and like what are what are we doing like what are we what do we want and the language that we are using right now is about being and building beloved community because we know that we need to have a culture of love like we are not going to make it unless we learn how to actually like actually love each other not in like not like that but like hold each other accountable lift each other up help each other create a new vision help each other get grounded in the past help each other understand your spiritual power your emotional power be healthy eat the right things make sure that you know how to have a hard conversation like all of those things is what it looks like to be loving and then how does that love translate into policy so like, what does education policy look like? What does cultural policy look like? What does criminal justice look like? If you were actually looking through the lens of love, which none of our policies do right now. Most of our policies look through the lens of hypercapitalism, of separation, of all the things that are not feeding us, all the things, right? And so if we wanna actually be a well society, we have to be able to figure out what a practical approach to love looks like. That is what we are building. That is why we've done all, that's why I'm in Memphis. Because I feel like there's something about this place where that alchemy can happen. And it can happen in such a powerful way that it actually juts out across the waters and really like envelops the whole entire world. In my mind, I'm like, we start in Memphis, we go down the Delta, we go out across the South, up to the rest of the country and out to the rest of the world. That's what Memphis is for me. That's why I'm here because I believe in the power of this place. I believe in the history of this place. I believe in the creativity and the innovation and the ingenuity of this place. And I believe in the spiritual power of this place. Like I believe in Memphis with all of my heart and soul. And I think that it is the only way that I can contribute to a loving world is by being here and doing this work. As we've mentioned earlier, um, you are a woman of many talents and policy is actually one of them. You've mm -hmm. done more than kind of dip your toes into that sector yeah. as well. So I'm curious about how you foresee Claiborne Temple's role in helping kind of rewrite yeah. the narrative of some policy through that lens of love moving forward. You know, that's an interesting question right now because we're in the middle of this mayoral season. And um, we um, we also like hold this community called the Memphis Cultural Coalition, which is like a, a collection of all of the arts leaders from across the city. And we just had a mayoral form, like the first mayoral form on the arts. Like, I'm like, how come nobody ever did that before? <laughs> right. Crazy, crazy. And we had the biggest turnout from any of the forums. We had like amazing participation. And for me, the translation of culture into policy is where I think that Claiborne is going to be strongest because policy is just an extension of who we are culturally. That is, it's like a fundamental, it's like um, the same thing that, that dictates how you greet each other when you meet in the street is the same thing that helps you 
di- that dictates what how, what gets passed in the legislature. That's just right. It's, it's I know it sounds simple, but it's like about our way of being. And my hope is that the work at Claiborne and the foundation and the production company that we are actually telling new stories and teaching about embodiment in such a way that we actually can develop a new culture that impacts the way that we look at policy and that we look at each other as like people who live in a community together, whether that's like your block or your state or your country. I I don't see how we're going to have a major transformation of policy without having a policy of being, which is like, again, not new. That's what all the, (laughs) right? Like I've read that 500 times from people who I who I respect as teachers, and I don't think that we have figured it out. We keep trying to use a simple solution to solve the most complex problem in human history. We cannot just pass laws and have and expect people to change. Like that's just not how that's not how humanity works. We actually have to have the change from the inside out. And I hope that Claiborne can contribute to that. And also, <laughs> and also because we are so relational. Whoever, um, the people who are leaders in our community, whether they be black captains or organizers or mayors or city council people, we build relationships with those folks and we have them in our space and we tell them the stories and we show them the new possibilities for humanity. We come up with innovative, innovative solutions that maybe came out of our team, but maybe came from a community that's in California. Like right now, there's an amazing organization in, in the East Bay who I'm like, everyone look at this model this model of community ownership and community wealth building, this is something that we can do here in Memphis because there are people all over the country who are doing amazing work that we can learn from. And so because of the position that we're in, we can bring some of those models and some of that resource and, that, and money because like every dollar that we use to buy and build historic Claiborne Temple, none of it came from Memphis. All of it, the first money that we got came from other places around the country. We we got eventually money from the county here from Shelby County. Thank you, Shelby County. Um, but <laughs> and eventually we got money from some of the local foundations. But our first two years, every dollar that we brought in was from outside of the city. So bringing in new resources, bringing in new money, making sure that we're telling the story of Memphis and foundations all over the country like that is how we help. That's how we help bring new light, new money and new ideas. I'm curious, you mentioned how we can learn from other communities, which I love, but I'm also intrigued to know where you think Memphis can kind of lead that charge in innovation. <laughs> in all ways. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, that's that's what, um, that is the work that we are trying to do right now. Um, I should give us more credit. We're not trying. This is the work that we are doing right now is finding those places of innovation that we can share. I think that Memphis, the, um, I used to say when I first moved here that like, what did I, how did I call it? Memphis, the, um, Memphis's number one raw material was creativity. Like, I don't know a, a place that is more creative and thoughtful about innovation than Memphis. Like you could, a quarter and find somebody who can paint or dance or sing or something and the thing i love about creativity is that it is a skill that can be used across all boards so if you understand how to tap into your creativity then you can come up with a new way to 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 legislate you can come up with a new way to govern you can come up with a new way to parent you can come with a new with a new way to build and to me 
our ability to reimagine is our superpower. And that is what I think we can share with the rest of the world. I agree. Do you <laughs> do you see Claiborne Temple as being kind of a feather in the cap of Memphis where other 100%. cities can look to Memphis and say, look what they did. We absolutely we have these spaces that are meaningful and have stories to tell. Mm hmm. Yeah, because I feel like um, the tendency in spaces like Claiborne is to build a monument to the past. Right. Which. Which There's nothing wrong with a that, bit. right? <laughs> Outside, I mean, in, some, in your plaza, which is uh, very meaningful. Absolutely. <laughs> it's be and it's beautiful, right? Um, and I feel like the way that we are innovating is by saying these stories of the past are really important, but they're actually really important because they tell us what to do in the future. Not just go, we don't need to sit in this story and reminisce. We can sit in this story and reimagine. Right. And that to me is what I hope is the legacy of Claiborne Temple is that you leave there not just thinking about the past, but you actually are holding your own story side by side and rethinking how you are showing up on the planet as a human being, as a neighbor, as a family member, as a whatever you are to whoever, as a stranger, as a stranger, because love is also about how you treat people you will never meet in your life what you think about them, what you think is possible for them, how you pray for them, how you whatever for them. So I I hope that we are a place where people um, understand that imagination is for more than than creativity. You know what I mean? And that's why we are um, thinking about this space in the ways that we are. We're, we're opening it as a cultural arts center. So it'll be like, one part performing arts center, one part community center. So there's that intersection of how you exist in your mind and how you exist in your heart and how you exist in your body and how those things come together and how they can be transformed by being in community inside that space with all that history and that beautiful, beautiful, that space is so beautiful. Like even if nothing ever happened there important, it's like such a beautiful, inspiring building. And then you lay the storytelling on top of that. It's wild to be in there. Even in the state it's in right now, we've we've literally renovated every inch of the outside of that building, but the inside we haven't touched. And so even the way it looks right now, you walk in there and your mind is just like anything is possible. People walk in that building and they're like chin on the floor, eyes to the ceiling, right? Like, I can't believe what this... They It's beautiful. It's inspiring just the way it is. And... When it's finished, hopefully, um, it'll be even more so. I was so intrigued in learning about the ways that you are still connecting people to the space during construction. Yeah. Um, we may not be able to access it, but your traveling exhibit. Can you tell us a little Ooh, bit about that? Oh, yes. I love the traveling exhibit so much. <laughs> it's so amazing. So we have... Um, through a partnership with the National Park Service and the National Trust for Historic Preservation, a 10-panel traveling exhibit that really tells the story of the strike and of Memphis and the South, really from that perspective of 1968 between February and April. Um, and it also has a companion full-color 65-page book that also tells the story in a more extensive way. And we give it away for free to folks. So um, we'll link that on the website, yeah, yeah. your guidebook. Yep. Yes. Yes. Because it comes in a PDF too. You can get a copy of it. And it really is like such a beautiful tribute to the folks who were involved in the strike. And there's gorgeous pictures in there. 
and pictures that have never been printed before. So we <clears throat> we have like we were able to go into the archive at the University of Memphis. We were able to connect with some local photographers who had had who had archives of their own, and the it's just like a mind-blowingly beautiful piece of art and storytelling that we are able to use to not only um, share the story of the strike, but also to connect people back to the possibility of the space and what will be happening um, once we open. I'm very excited about it. We actually just got a second copy because it's like, it's booked out for the next year and a half. <laughs> so we had to buy a second set so that we have one in the office and we can just take it you know, we're about to get a third set because I feel like I wanted to go to all the churches, but, you know. Can you share uh, any of the places that it's traveled? Yeah, it's been at the Withers Gallery. It's been at a University of Memphis. And it just moved to somewhere new. And I can't remember where that is. It's only been, it's just only our third place. We just got it like a few months ago. Mm -hmm. Why was it important to make sure that the community could still have that kind of touchstone? <laughs> because it's the community story. It's like a way for us to be able to, well, to me, one, it's an offering. It's like, um, when I first came here and I was like, cause we you know Claiborne was open when, when I, if not when I first got here, it was not open for about six months, but the first two years I lived in Memphis, the building was open. And um, young people would come in and I would ask them like, do you know what happened here? Do you know this story? Do you know these names? And they would all say no. All of them would say no. And then I would ask grownups like, oh, have you been here before? Do you know this story? Do you know these names? No. And so part of it was just like an offering to reflect back the brilliance of this place, of this city. Um, one of the things that really struck me when I first moved here was how many Memphians didn't see the beauty and the brilliance of this place the way I did. And it hurt my feelings to be like, but this is your home. Like I want you to I want you to see it through my eyes. I want you to understand why I think it's so beautiful and so powerful and why I love it here. Um and so part of it was just an offering back to Memphis to say, like, do you see yourself? Like here is a mirror of how we see you and what we think the beauty and possibility of this place is. And that was really important to me. That continues to be really important to me. That's one of the reasons that's another reason why I stayed, because I was like, I can't, I cannot stand by and have such gorgeous people not see their power that just didn't feel good to me and people taking responsibility for things um that was not theirs to take like the woman who came up to me and said i mean well we did kill dr king no ma'am that wasn't no that wasn't you you can't take that on that's not that's not actually that's not what happened that's like a revisionist history like let's get clear about what happened why he came here in the first place and why he was murdered and by whom it was not you. Let's take that off the table and let's do some healing and let's go ahead and say like, I think about this a lot. I thought about it a lot when I first got here, like the grief that I felt when I came here at first and part of like what opened up for me in understanding the story of 1968 was understanding, um, one, like the history and the legacy of enslavement here and the fact that this was the capital of cotton and all that that means. Like, we could talk about that for five hours. I'm not going to go into it. If anybody wants to talk about it, find me and I'll go into it. But like, just like what it means to be the capital of cotton 
That's a lot. <laughs> That's a lot to hold. And then you have Robert Church, right, who is the first black millionaire in the entire country. And what that means that he lived here and then the loss of his legacy and what that means. And then you have like Crump and that shenanigans and what that means. And then you have these two men who are killed in the back of a trash truck and like the devastation of a community of people who are working class, who are doing their best to feed their families and they lose two of their brothers in the most horrific way. Right. And then they're like, you know what? No. We're not doing this anymore. You guys can have a seat and we are leaving, right? And then to be persecuted and unsupported and berated the way that they were for making that step to stand up for themselves and their family. And then we have uh, Larry Payne, who was a teenager who was murdered on that March 28th, memorialized and funeralized in Claiborne Temple. And then two days later, you have King's assassination. It's too much. That is too much for anybody to bear. There is no wonder. Anybody who is wondering, like, why? well, why is Memphis like, well, because. How are you supposed to withstand all that and then have people tell you that you're crazy? Like, well, why? Just get over it. What's the problem? No, that's just not how the human heart works, right? And so the decisions that were made in this town by people who wanted nothing more than to be in control and power and wealthy and not care about anybody else is the reason why there is so much sorrow here and why the reason why there is the hopelessness that it is and why the reason why people don't see how gorgeous they are in this city. And because I'm not from here and I'm not holding the burden of that grief, I'm not holding the burden of that story, I can come in with fresh eyes and I can say like, oh, I can see under that. I see you. I see you under all that. I see you like what would happen if we just wash all that away and we start to look at what is true and we tell those stories in a new way so like you can actually understand the context that you've been living in and then reframe for the future. That is the thing. That is what Memphis is to me. It's like, <laughs> it's like a diamond ring with some mud on top and you just think you have a mud ring. No, baby, you are diamonds under there. And, and like, Anyone that lives in this context with the socioeconomic intersection of race and class that's existed in this place for hundreds of years and the way that like even, see, I'm about to get on a soapbox. Ooh, child. Everybody calm down. Okay. But even the way that folks who believe they are doing their best to help, particularly poor and black people in this city, the way that they approach it just adds to the weight. It adds to the hurt. It, it adds to the sense of disempowerment and does not create space for folks to breathe and actually reimagine their lives. And so our work is really about saying like, we actually believe in the power and the beauty and the brilliance of people who have been black and poor for generations and their their poorness, their poverty does not mean that they don't have access to dreams and they shouldn't have access to capital and they shouldn't have access to opportunity and to space and to like dignity. Like what a novel idea, right? To be able to see someone no matter what they've done or what's been done to them and say that you are a human being who is worthy of respect and regard. Tell me what you need, right? That's not what happens here in Memphis. That's not what happens. And so in order for us to be able to become the city that I know we can to lead the future of humanity that I know we can, like people have to be allowed to be human. 
And that's not how we treat people here in this city. We see them as animals, as criminals, as poor people, as this, as that. But we are all human. We are all human. And if so-and-so over there had the same legacy and was dealing with the same context and the same conditions, that's the same thing that they will be doing. And the, the lack of acknowledgement for that is disgusting. And it has to stop. Like, we are the same. We're the same. We are the same. And, like, until we get that and we start treating each other with the way we would treat our own children, our own family, our own moms, our own brothers, then we're not going to make it. But that's the opportunity of Memphis is a possibility of that because people really want for this place to be different. People really want for it to be better. They want it to be safer. They want it to be more loving. They want it to be more innovative. People want that. But we have to do the work. Like, we can't just want it and then be like, I'm going to make sure y'all insert your charity thing here like that's not how transformation works it's not how the human heart works it's not how people work it's not how economics works like we have to be different like we have to transform from the inside we have to be a new culture with a new set of stories and a new set of cultural values but we are not going to be the thing that we can be here i've never really heard it i'm a native Memphian, and i've never really heard it put that way before Mm. and that honestly is very refreshing Mm. for me just to it does it's very heavy to yeah. feel like you're your own worst critic in a lot of ways here <laughs> yes. in Memphis to feel like we're you know we're often more down on ourselves than other people around the city I mean or around the country would be around the and, world and so that's it does it feels like you need to let me go ahead and say the bad thing before someone else says yeah. it about me yeah so let me go ahead and just like get that on the table so that no one thinks I'm trying to hide it or whatever yeah. and so but to understand <laughs> that there is so much innovation and creativity that is still within us in that raw material, like you said. I don't, I'm not even from here. I've been here six years. And when I go around the world and people say, where do you live? And I say, I live in Memphis. People lose their minds all over the world. You live in Memphis? What? And they're like, I know, and I've been there and I said, and I want to come literally literally everybody who ever asked me and I say Memphis, their eyes light up like a Christmas tree. People love this place. They love it. And when I, when I first moved here, it took me a long time to find somebody to be like, I love it here. This is my home and I'm excited about it. I'm proud to be from Memphis. I'm proud to be from Memphis. There was like a, a, um, a film of shame that exists in this place that is not, uh, it's not real. It's not based in reality. It's based in uh, rhetoric and stories, right, of the past that are skewed, that we're looking through this lens. Um, And it's funny to me because when I first moved here, it was before I moved here because I was living in Nashville. And I felt like this place was so familiar to me because I lived in Nashville. And there's, like, a lot of it, like, I know I'm going to get in trouble for saying this, but there's a lot... (laughs) It felt very familiar and it felt like very different. And I kept being like, like, why? What is it? What is that thing I keep feeling? Like, what is that thing? And I had like a light bulb one moment and I was like, Nashville is perceived as a wealthy white town. Memphis is perceived as a poor black town. And so what it gets, how it's regarded, how it is seen, how it is supported, how it is talked about is 100% 100% different. And that is the that is the difference between Memphis and Nashville. That's it. And so when I realized that, I was like, oh, okay, I got it. I got it. 
I'm together. Let's go. Because that the shame that comes with the legacy of enslavement and the legacy of poverty and the way that black people have been terrorized in this country by black people and white people, right? Like the shame of whiteness is real. That is real, right? And the people who are feeling conflicted because they have like this deep seated shame, but also this fear and this terror, like I don't feel safe in this community, right? It is a, it is a, um, it is a very intricate intellectual, spiritual and emotional puzzle to be undone. And it cannot be undone because you like gave a thousand dollars to be able to make sure some kids right have an after school program. And the result of that complexity, right? Like people want to talk about the crime and all that, but like I don't understand how you expect there not to be crime when the children in third grade can't read. And if you can't figure out how to make sure that babies can read, I don't I don't I don't really have anything for you. Right? Like that's it's crazy that we haven't figured out how to make sure that the children, children of our community are safe and taken care of and know how to read. Like reading, that is the most basic service that a community can do for a person is make sure they know how to read. And we haven't been able to figure that out and y'all worried about crime? Get out of here. No, that's not how, that's not how this works. That's not how people work. It's not how humanity works. I'm gonna say it one more time. It's not how the human heart works. If you want someone lens of love, you have to like, how do you say that you care for children and they don't have their basic needs met? How do we not have that? Like, how do we have the shenanigans that we have in, um, on, on, in the school system? You, you don't, you're not, you're not, you're not, you're not looking at these children through the lens of love. The fact that we still are, funding children's education based on the tax base in their neighborhood or their school, that is not looking at children through the lens of love. That means that if my baby, if I'm poor and my baby goes to school, then they don't have books, they don't have computers, they have nothing. But if I'm born a mile away, they have a laptop and fewer students in their class and clean halls and flowers outside, no, no. That is like a fundamental, very simple, basic thing that we can do for human beings through the lens of love that will literally change everything. You start right there. You make sure these kids have what they need to thrive. They become different adults. Their families become different. Their neighborhoods become different. The future becomes different. So I don't understand why we are having, like, especially now in the, like, it's driving me crazy, this this conversation about crime and the mayoral race. Like, I'm not saying that crime is not an issue. I'm not saying that we don't need to be safe. But the myopic nature with which we are having the conversation and talk about it from a crime and punishment standpoint without talking about the fundamental reasons why we have so much crime in the first place. Memphis is the biggest food desert in the country. It is the biggest per capita food desert in the country. People are not eating. And you're mad because you got carjack. People are not eating. Like, how about we start there? How do we have a conversation of both and? How do we make sure we get people who are committing crimes somewhere where they're not harming people, but also make sure that those babies are eating and learning how to read and simple things like that? Like, why is that a conversation? I don't understand what we're doing. It's like what Josh Spickler says. He says, when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Indeed. Um, (laughs) 
So I'm curious um, about how listeners can participate or get involved with city revitalization efforts, Mm. but also (laughs) particularly, like we spoke about earlier, enter into this with respect and honor, because that is such a key asterisk that is often kind of left off of, hey, I want to be involved in this kind of work. I want to, you know, I'm passionate about this, but making sure that it, it ends and lands the right way, how to kind of do that. What a difficult and complex question. Um, I feel like, uh, and I've found this both here in Memphis and across the South, is that when you're talking about revitalization and you're talking about restoration and you're talking about development, there is um, an image of who is worthy and capable of doing that kind of work. Right. So like even I'm like, even me, that was sound so terrible. Even me, when I first moved here, um, literally had someone tell me, I'm not worried about you being able you can't you can't do this. And and no one's gonna help you. Right? Because someone who walks around in my body is not someone who you would think about as a developer or as a person who would run a foundation or as a person who has access to mega capital that you need to be able to do. Like Claymore Temple at the end of the day is going to cost us $40 million, right? I don't look like somebody who has access to $40 million. And so there is a conversation about like when someone says, oh, I'm going to buy a building and revitalize it, you have an image in your mind about who that is and what that person looks like. It is not me. It is not me. It is not somebody who has been historically impoverished. It's not somebody who went to a school with no computers. It's just not, it's not us. And so the assumption that somebody who has access to capital has the right expertise and mindset to be the one to do that development is like the beginning of where we need to unravel the conversation, right? Okay, yeah. And I'm not saying those people should not be doing that. I'm saying they should be doing them in community with other folks who can bring another perspective to the table, right? Maybe you do bring the capital, but what do I bring that's equally important? Which is hard to do. We're living in a society where money is king, right? So it looks like if I walk in the room with no money, I have no value. That's the first place we have to start. Like I actually have so much value, right? And in some cases, value that you could never generate on your own. And the acknowledgement of that and like the ab- the ability to put that next to the capital and say like both of these things are important is like kind of where we have to start. I think the other thing is like, I would like for us to, to open up the conversation about what a bottom line looks like and like what the goals are, because when you're talking about development and architecture and those things, like the conventional wisdom is that your goal is to make as much money as possible. But sometimes making as much money as possible means that you're harming a community, you're displacing some people, you're not giving the storytelling the the space it deserves, and you're not thinking about other people's future, you're only thinking about your own future, right? And so, like, maybe instead of making $10 million, you'll make five. Like, can you be okay with that? We talk about that all the time. Like, what does success look like? What or what success- does it, like, this might be a win, but a win for whom? This is the question <laughs> I like to ask. Like, what is enough? Like, when is it enough? When will you have enough money in your bank account to be like, I'm good. My kids are good. My grandkids are good. I don't have to make another dollar. I actually can change the way I think about my business model, right? Which is not generally what happens. <laughs> not generally what happens. And I know, like, in some rooms, like, that is just complete craziness to even think like that. But, like, 
in order for us to live in a society where everybody is taken care of and everybody is okay, we have to have a conversation about what enough looks like. Because right now, what we have a conversation about is like as much as possible. But like at some point, like you can't spend another dollar. You cannot, like you can't spend all that. So like, why? Why is it important for you to have as much as possible? When you like, even if the, even if, <laughs> even if it was like, even if the enough was a hundred million dollars, like what, what, what are you going to do with the hundred and first million dollar? Like what, what is, what is for what? Why? Why is it your ego? Is it because you somebody told you like what? Why do you Boiling have to? Why down to that? Why to success? Like what does does success look like? The stories being able to be told for another generation and two and three and success for our city as a whole rather than. Right. And does success look like us never having to be like, oh, wow, half the kids in the third grade can't read. But you have one hundred and one million dollars. So it's cool. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like that's that's where we are as a community. That's where we are. And those folks who do have access to capital that can be transformative capital in community. Like how do they build the kind of relationships with folks where they understand that just because they have the money doesn't mean that they get to make all the decisions. Because normally folks who have access to that kind of capital actually have no proximity to the issues that they're working to solve. And so they don't have the relationship with the solutions like they're they're applying fortune 500 solutions to literally a neighborhood and it's just not the same thing you just can't approach it like a business you have what to would your advice like be to somebody if if <laughs> i did have you know lots of capital and i was interested in yeah. revitalization efforts how would i go about putting myself <sighs> in proximity to people so i think so this is why we started the foundation because I was looking around, I'm like, these people who are making decisions about where this money needs to go, like, they should not be making these decisions. What are they doing? And I wanted to put a layer in between those folks who had easy access to capital and the folks who needed the capital. Some group of people who could be in the middle who can be like, um, actually, we all need to be in relationship with each other. We can be ambassadors, each for the other community. So, like, we can help bring people together. And we can help. Uh, work with a group of people who represent many experiences to help build a strategy to deploy capital in a way that becomes transformative, right? So, like, the easy answer is, like, give all your money to the Big We Foundation and we'll help you figure it out. <laughs> but, like, the deeper answer really is, like, find the people who have proximity that you can actually build relationship with, right? And trust them. Don't say, like, I'm going to give you this money and I need to know every single thing that you do with it every minute of the day. And you, better, these stipulations. And you better have <laughs> these five things, right? Because um, it's really venture capital. It's like if to, to use that language is really to, to use language that's comfortable for folks with, with capital. This is really like venture capital. It's like a lot of money that needs to be put in a lot of places and only 30% of the ideas are going to work, right? So it's like, are you comfortable with failure? Are you going to hold a um, a community of Black people in South Memphis accountable in a way that you would not hold a bro in khakis trying to start a tech company, right? Because those folks get to fail all the time. They get a $10 million and they're like, oops, it didn't work. Okay, well, do you have another idea? We got another 50 for you. That's how that 
that's how that works. But if you go into a community and you're like, we want to figure out how to fix our schools. And they're like, we're going to give you $50,000 and you're going to have to make it last three years. And, oh, it didn't work. Oh, okay. We will never invest in you again. I'm trying to find lightning in a bottle on that first time. Yeah. I don't even know if it's that. I feel like it's look asking for the, for the impossible. Mm-hmm. Like that was, it was never going to work. That's never going to work. Right. And then the ways that folks are asked to account for that money in terms of like the question of like, well, how many kids did you serve? That's not the right question to be asking. Right. The question to be asking is like, let's talk about the innovation. How can we use the tools that we have access to? Right. Because we have access to technology and to uh, all kind. I don't even know, right? But like, it, list, yeah. right? Is it scalable? Can this work? Okay, it worked for 10 people. Can it work next time for 12? But even that is like, <laughs> when you are thinking about R&D, right? If you think about R&D in the scientific space or the corporate space, like, innovation is required to be able to move humanity forward. That's not what is allowed in community from a philanthropic standpoint, right? And also, like, the kinds of capital that people are investing. Like, you actually can't transform our neighborhoods with philanthropy. You actually have to do investments, and you have to do loans, and you have to transfer land. You have to have a full-spectrum integrated capital model, or you cannot just be like, we're going to give you a $50,000 grant every year for the rest of your life. This is never going to work. <laughs> never going to work. And so, like, the innovation must be there, and it has to be from all these different perspectives, and it requires a lot of people. And the other thing that I find happens is, like, folks who are who are in philanthropy, who are um, who are uh, thinking about what it looks like to, to, to support financially neighborhoods and communities and organizations, they feel like the money is enough. And they never ask the question, like, how will I be transformed by this community? How will I be transformed by this gift? How will I be transformed by this process? And they don't allow space for the people to come into their heart and actually show them and teach them and grow them and transform them into people who can be in community with other folks who are not like them. They, they, they want to give and stay the same. They want to give and they want to be like, but I'm going to be over here. They don't want that reciprocity. They don't want to reciprocate with a relationship. They don't believe that reciprocity is possible because they believe that the wealth is a thing that makes them important and powerful and special. Right. They don't think like I'm a human being and I am so grateful. I have access to these things and I have access other things I don't have access to. I need to put myself into proximity with people who can help me access the other parts of life. Right. That are equally important and that are equally powerful and that could transform me as much as my money can transform their lives, right? And that often, to me, is like fundamentally missing from those relationships. And I also can say, like, my own personal experience has taught me that it's like not racism or sexism or classism or all the other things that get in the way. It's like people's emotional inability to have difficult accountability conversations, because if we have a relationship and I made $1 last year and you made $20 million last year, if we have a relationship and I can say to you, like, here are the things that I see where you're missing it. Here are the things that I can say you showed up in a way that felt 
disrespectful or dishonorable. Here's the ways that you're missing the point because of your experience and things that you can't see. And I can't hear the same thing from you. Then we're never going to get anywhere. <laughs> like we're never going to, we're never going to get anywhere because we all have to, tra- like there's, there's nobody, not one person in Memphis that doesn't need to be transformed for this to work. And the assumption that there are a group of us who got it and understand it and have all the answers and can, I'm good. Those people over there need to get it together. It's just not true. It's just not true. And also, I'm curious about what your hope is for the way that Claiborne Temple will transform our community. Mm, I love that question. Um, it is really important to me that Claiborne Temple be a place where every single person feels welcome. Um, so because Claiborne Temple is like at the it, in the middle of all of these intersections. So if you think about like the Presbyterian Church and the and the African Methodist Episcopalian Church, you think about downtown in South Memphis, you think about all of these places that converge in that building, the past and the future, and the, all these things that converge literally inside that building. It feels like the possibility of a of one of the few places in Memphis where everybody can walk through the door and feel like they belong. And that to me is like our biggest contribution is like, can we bring people together to have these conversations to have people feel like, feel at home enough to open up just a little bit, tell them stories to crack their hearts open and look across the aisle at somebody that they've never been in space with before and be like, that is a person who I can love and be loved by and have the beginning of a conversation. And like, I, I understand how that sounds. <laughs> it sounds like very airy fairy, utopic and all that. But like, it is the first step to doing the work that we have to do. That's why I chose storytelling as a as um a vocation. Because the way that I want the world to end up, it requires a level of vulnerability that we don't have time to foster in the traditional ways. Like we don't have time in Memphis for everybody to be in relationship with, with each other in the way that we need to be for this thing to work. But the fast way, the fast track to vulnerability and to intimacy is storytelling. If I tell you my story, I can make you cry in five minutes and then you will see me in a different way. You will be willing to love me in a different way. You'll be able to listen to me in a different way. Right. That's what happened with me when I moved here. The, the folks who I was first interacting with around Claiborne Temple, we could not have been more different Physically, spiritually, intellectually, politically, we could not have been more different. But the first time we met, he made me cry. And I was like, I got it. I got it. I got you. And if you're willing to do this with me, I'm willing to do with you. Let's figure it out. We ultimately were not able to figure it out. But it was, but in that moment, and for a, a little while, we were right, right there. And the thing that got in the way was like, we couldn't get past the hard conversation. And I want Claiborne to be a place where like we can have, we can sit and hold hands and cry and scream and laugh and dance and sing and do whatever we got to do and have the hard conversation and leave out somewhere else. And if that happens with 10 people, if over the next 10 years, 10 people can leave there and be like, I, I get it, then this city will be different. That is what I know. And I also know that we can do it with way more than 10 people. <laughs> I know we could do it. <laughs> I have kind of a in the airy fairy kind of yeah, sector on, of like, <laughs> um, if the walls of Claiborne Temple could talk, what do you think that they would say? Welcome. 
That's what they would say. They would say welcome. So it, the plan is for opening in 2024. Is that still the plan? Well, <laughs> well, no, because, you know, when you do historic preservation and you go into a 200-year-old building. There might be a few surprises. <laughs> so we actually, like, right now what's happening is the stained glass windows are being installed right now. So, like, you should drive by if you haven't. We're going to um, have a celebration later in the fall and let people come and see them on, on the inside. Y'all should come. Um, and then we have to remove that. Have y'all seen the organ inside Claiborne Temple? It's like the biggest organ in town. <laughs> it's like 3,000 pipes. And we have to take it out the building. So like that is what will happen next. And then we'll do demo. And the demo alone is going to take five months. Okay. Just to take everything out the building will take five months. And then we have 18 more months of construction. And then you know it never happens the way they say. So, like, I like to say 24 because that's just how it is. So, yeah. in my mind, we probably have two and a half years from now until okay. we have an opening. Okay. Mm -hmm. How can we get involved and support the work and support Ooh. the transformation? Well... The first thing that you can do is open your heart immediately right now under the sound of my voice. Open your heart just a little bit, just a little bit. And then you can go to Claiborne.org and you can sign up for our newsletter. Um, we're, we just got a phone number because we haven't had a phone number because we're closed. So we haven't had like a place for people to go. But we have an office now, which is very exciting. That is very exciting. Right around the corner. And um, we have been doing programming. So we have community leadership council for folks who want to understand and learn about restorative economics and how to be able to build this world where the economy works for everyone. We have artistic programming. We have um, uh, um, arts residency, artistic residency. Um, we're actually bringing Union the Musical back. We're in the process of um, rewriting the script to be able to have like a 2.0 version. And so that will be happening in the next two years. Um, I would just, we have a newsletter. We have all kinds of stuff going on. We have like, we have so much programming. People are like, what, you're closed, right? We just, you know, it's important what is for closed? us to be. <laughs> what, what exactly? What is closed? Of course we're not closed. Our building is just resting right now. But we are it's open for a business. Siesta. Yes. We are open for business. Mm-hmm. Well, Anasa, I am so excited about the projects ahead and too. all of the current work that you're doing. And I think this has been such an enlightening conversation and energizing conversation about the way we as a city view ourselves and where we can go from here. I forgot one thing. Okay. We're also on Instagram. Like probably the quickest way to get us is to DM us on Instagram or on Facebook too. Yeah. And you can always find me. I'm at Anasha Troutman. I'm on all the things. I'm on the, the LinkedIn, the Instagram, and I'm on there all the time. So you can, you find me, you can find Claiborne. I'll help you. I love it. <laughs> Thank you so much for taking time from your very oh, busy schedule my, to come share with honor. us. It's my about honor to be here. It's my all honor. of this. Well, it's been a joy. So thank you. Thank you. Rebecca, that was such an interesting conversation for me personally as a native Memphian. It it felt like it shone a light on the vulnerability that's needed for forward progress here in Memphis. I feel like I learned so much in such a short amount of time, and I'm really grateful for projects like this that are not just preserving history, but giving us the context in which it sits and also using it as a jumping off point for how we can shape our future. 
Um, and I'm hopeful that as a community, we can move forward uh, being thoughtful, intentional, curious, and respectful as we engage in ongoing community work. And I'm hopeful that we will take time to listen to stories. I think that was such a great directive to listen to people's stories, but also think about the way that we frame our own personally and as a city. Absolutely. And I'm definitely going to be keeping on my lens of love as I walk through the city um, today on the heels of 901 Day, but also throughout the rest of the year and then moving forward, hopefully to the next 50 or 100, as she said. Till next week. Bye. Independent Bank is celebrating 25 years of sharing your stories, building your dreams, and serving you heroically. Find out how iBank can help you achieve your financial dreams at i-bankonline.com. Member FDIC.